Almighty God, we do ask that you would come and enliven your words, the words of Scripture and the words preached here, to be for your people the very word of life. And so I pray that you would nourish us this day from your word and as we come to your table from your blessed sacrament. And so we commend ourselves to your love and care. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I'm still trying to keep on time, but um, I'm horrible with that, so bear with me. What is more needed in our time than a community marked by sincere love? Sharing what they have from each according to their ability and to each according to their need, eating together regularly, generously serving neighbors, and living lives of quiet virtue and prayer. Jake Metter poses this rhetorical question in a recent article found in The Atlantic, exploring the reason why 40 million Americans have quit attending church in the last 25 years. The implied answer, of course, to his question is that there is nothing more needed right now than that sort of community. And the author is not wrong. In our lesson from Romans chapter 12, we encounter Paul's prescription for such a community. In verses 3 through 21, Paul develops further and in more practical detail the distinctly Christian culture that he calls for it calls us to adopt in verses 1 through 2. And if you didn't catch last week's sermon, I would encourage you to do that because these two are feeding off one another. As Paul calls us to cultivate a distinctly Christian culture that embodies the gospel in its total way of life, serving both as a contrast and as a witness to the surrounding culture. That's what Paul is calling us to. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 in the book of Romans function as this turning point in Paul's thought and logic. Verses 1 through 11 has been this expansive narration of the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ. Paul kind of condemns us all in verses 1 through 3, but then shows us that there is righteousness available to us freely through faith in Jesus Christ, showing us an example of one who has received that righteousness by faith in Abraham, And five, those of us who believe Jesus has united us together with the Father, making reconciliation and peace. Six, we're united with Jesus through baptism in such a way that what's true of him is true of us. Well, what about the law and the continuing of sin? Paul says, don't worry, in Christ there is no condemnation. Seven and eight, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in nine through 11, he deals with Israel. And then 12, the turning point of it all. Therefore, brothers... Sisters, on the mercies, based on the mercies of God, all that good news in 1 through 11, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As we saw last week, that's a call to a distinctive, total way of life as a Christian, defined by worship. All of life is worship. Christian culture is worship. That's what we saw last week there in Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. If we were to move on into verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, this is what was in our reading last week, but what we didn't cover on, Paul furthers his understanding of the church as a distinctive culture by using the familiar analogy of the church as the body of Christ, the body of Christ. 
Now, the use of the human body as a metaphor was not uncommon in the ancient world to describe a people, a city. Uh, think This is where we get the idea or the concept of a body politic. Polis is the Greek word for city. Body politic is the ancient Greeks understood the city-state in relationship to a human body. And this single image was helpful because it was able to explain rather simply the unity the diversity and the interdependency of a society in the ancient world and today even. And for the same reason, Paul found this image helpful in teaching his churches a theology of the church, an understanding of themselves in relationship to Jesus and to one another that they are a distinct new humanity, a new people, a new culture, the culture of a coming kingdom where Jesus Christ rules. And like the human body, the church is a complex organism with a variety of distinct members, each performing a different but vital activity. And this is the means by which God has designed to cultivate within us as the church a distinct new culture, defined more by the coming age, the age of his kingdom, than by the present age, the age that's marked by rebellion against God. And so the question we might want to ask, verses 3 through 8, is, well, how then do we participate in what God is doing? He's the one giving us all these gifts. What's our role in all this? Well, Paul is kind enough to answer that question. First, if you look at verse 3, Paul gives two essential ways here that we participate with God. Verse 3 is the first one. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Prideful arrogance. Pride or arrogance or prideful arrogance or, arrog- or arrogant pride, uh, however you want to join that together, is utterly destructive. Utterly destructive within the church and to the culture of God's kingdom. It is destructive because it's the antithesis of Christ's very nature and way of life that he embodied while on earth and what he continues to live out as a man at the right hand of God, a God-man at the right hand of the Father. Paul tells us so clearly what his example, his way of life was in Philippians chapter 2. You've heard it plenty of times from this pulpit. I hope you would commit it to memory. Similarly, Paul speaks to the church at Philippi, and he says, Be humble. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, you possess it, in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man. He humbled himself even further, taking on the form of a servant, and even further than that, dying a cursed death on a cursed tree. That's the example of Jesus. At the core of the good news, at the core of the gospel, stands God made flesh, Humbled, self-humbling, a self-offering even. So prideful arrogance is the exact opposite. Indeed, it's the demonic subversion of 
humility, of divine humility that characterizes the culture of God's kingdom, that is to characterize the culture we enact and live out in our lives. Second, that's the first way we would participate with what God is doing to cultivate within us uh, the culture of his kingdom. One, we just need to think of ourselves appropriately in relationship to God and others. Be humble. Second, look at verse 6. Paul, I, Paul sometimes can be very convoluted. Not convoluted, but he's, he can be technical in his logic. But I love chapters 12 through 15 in Romans because he's extremely clear and direct. And that's what's so great about verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You want to participate with what God's doing to cultivate in you the kingdom, his coming kingdom, the kingdom that his son rules over both in heaven and on earth? Be humble. Use your gifts. Use the gifts that I have given to you. Paul is so practical here. Each one of you sitting here today has been uniquely gifted and equipped by God the Father. Uniquely. Each one of you has your own sets of gifts that God has given to you to use within the body of Christ. So Paul simply says, use them. Don't be shy. If someone gives us a gift, we're rarely shy about telling other people about it. We want people to know, man, look what my wife gave me. Look what my husband gave me. Look what my mom or dad gave me. Look what my friends gave me. This is awesome. I'm going to wear it. I'm going to show people if they're coming to my house and it's something on the walls. Will you just look at this? Vanna White. Will you look here? God says, don't be shy. I've given you unique gifts. I've, I've equipped you by grace to be a part of this community. Now, live it out. Use your gifts in humility. And the way that God has gifted you is vital for the life of the church. And we need to hear that. You are essential. You are necessary for God's work in this community because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, God is the one who composes a body. I don't know where else or whatever means the, all of us here today would have come together in any other way other than God drawing us here all through a variety of different means that got us into this building, got us into this church, working together, one another, loving one another. You are an essential part of what God is doing here. Not because of who you are, but because of God, who God has equipped you to be by His grace. You are vital. And we will never cultivate a robust culture of God's kingdom if we do not value each person as indispensable to God's work among us and for us. Whether they are disabled, and we have folks in our church who are disabled, a lot of young children, and they are a gift to us. Indispensable to God's work. So are people who are married and single, rich and poor, young, old, man, woman, whether you have the gift of prophecy or service or teaching or exhortation or generosity or leadership or compassionate mercy, it doesn't matter. You are indispensable to what God is doing here because he's called you, he's equipped you, he's composed you within this body. And this is why Paul's instruction that we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought is so significant because nothing destroys that when we begin to look at ourselves over and against other people as better 
or them as worse than us. That puts a, that puts a speck in the, in the mechanism that God, sand in the mechanism that God is building here in his church. Now these are the two ways in which we can participate with God and his grace in the cultivation of a distinct Christian culture among us. And so we can simply say, be humble and use your gifts. Say that with me. Be humble and use your gifts. That's the first half of what we need to hear from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 21. Be humble, use your gifts. Now, what does the humble use of God's gifts of grace, his grace gifts, produce in the church? I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm, it's so good for you all to ask me these questions. Well, there are two things in the remainder of chapter 12 that Paul points us to. These are the products these are what the cultural products of what God is cultivating, producing in a body that submits, that is humble, and uses their gifts, that submits to his will. These two things are genuine love and peace. Genuine love and peace. So be humble, use your gifts, and produce genuine love and peace. Verse 9 here hangs like a banner over everything that follows all the way through the rest of the letter. This is the church's ultimate cultural product, if we could call it that, genuine love. Genuine love. Such love, Paul informs us, is unhypocritical. It lacks pretense. That's what genuine means. It lacks pretense. But you might be asking, what if I don't like someone? don't like John, I don't like George, I don't like Jim, don't like Sally. What if I don't like someone? Isn't it hypocritical to, to act like I love them when I don't feel love inside for them? Well, part of the answer is that for Paul, love is not about how we feel. Love is about what we do. Love is about what we do. In fact, in the early church, love was often connected directly to helping others out materially. Think of Acts chapter 2. After the Spirit of God has descended on the church for the first time at Pentecost, what's the description? With that body, they're gathering together with all their gifts. They're learning from the, from the reading of Scripture, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the prayer. So they're engaging what we're doing this morning. They're being shaped and cultivated into a particular kind of culture, the culture of God's kingdom, enlivened by His Spirit. And then what does Luke describe them as? A community that is selling their goods to provide for the needs of others. They're producing genuine love. So Paul calls us to provide genuine love for one another, and he recognizes that love is not rooted in our feelings. It's not motivated by our feelings, but rather by an obedience to God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what are the commandments of God? How are they summarized, Christ Church? We hear it every week in the liturgy at the very beginning. Love God, love your neighbor. Love is an action, not a feeling primarily, Feelings come along with actions, but they are not the driving force of Christian love. As a Christian, it is possible, not least through prayer, to decide firmly to obey God's command to love others, whether or not you particularly like them. And I said this in the first service, I'll say it here. I'm under no illusion that we all like each other equally. Uh, 
We all have different personalities. That sometimes personalities are grading on one another. It's okay. That happens in the body of Christ. But what we're called to do is to go beyond that, sacrifice that, and love one another genuinely. Love one another genuinely. And you know what? We may be surprised at what happens in our hearts when we do that. That God, by the mysterious working of his grace, may cultivate in us not just an obedience, or love out of duty to God, out of obedience, or love these folks out of obedience, but out of a mysterious working of his grace, he may actually cultivate within our hearts a genuine disposition towards love, a feeling of love and concern for the welfare of those we sit across from in these pews every week. So as Paul continues in verse 9, genuine love requires that we abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Genuine love in the way of Jesus is not amoral. It's not neutral. Some in our surrounding culture may suppose that genuine love is soft on evil, that it may deal therapeutically with it. Not so, says Paul. Not so. Evil is to be hated. Genuine love demands God-honoring moral resolve regarding both good and evil. As he says elsewhere, we must speak the truth in love. Truth about both, what is good and what is evil. We must clearly identify our world and see it how God sees it. And be not afraid to speak that truth that is God's truth in love to ourselves and to our neighbors. In relation to others within the church, as we see in verse 10, our love is to be a familial love and characterized by honoring one another. Indeed, it's one of the only times in the New Testament we're called to engage in a competition with one another. Outdo one another in honoring each other. And this is more than just friendship. The love envisioned here is reflected in the type of commitment experienced in the best families the kind of family commitment and love that transcends the darkest days, the deepest disagreements. That's what we are called to do within the church, to love genuinely with this family love, this devoted family affection and brotherly love. In verse 11, we see that in relation to God, genuine love is expressed in tireless zeal and with a fervent spirit. Christianity is not a sport for weekend warriors. It is not a sport for weekend warriors. True love labors, and it does not cease in that labor. It demands dedication and consistency that makes time for God and summons the energy to do his will even when it's difficult, even when we don't feel like it. And when it is difficult, we need the encouragement of verse 12. Look there. When we encounter tough moments or seasons in life, and they will come, I don't think anyone's under that delusion, they will come, genuine love of God and others is sustained by joyful hope, by joyful hope, patience in affliction, and constant prayer. The joy that comes from the Christian hope of salvation is like a beach umbrella that guards us from the beating, burning rays of the sun. It enables us to endure the beach so that we can enjoy the waves. Christian hope enables us to sustain joy even in the midst of hardship and suffering. And such joy as Paul has taught us in Romans chapter 5 
produces patience. Patience in affliction. And maintaining genuine love for God and our neighbor in the midst of hardship requires that we sustain, Paul says, a lifelong dialogue with our Lord. Prayer is essential. Prayer is essential to genuine love. As we move on through the passage, verse 13, this verse functions like a bridge, linking our way of life within the body of Christ to our way of life with those who are outside of the body of Christ, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, in the stores where we engage and and frequent. Paul says there in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. That's practical, genuine love in action. And seek to show hospitality. That's genuine love in action to those outside of the church, most likely. Hospitality in the ancient world, when people were visiting your town, if they would have come to Winston-Salem, if you were a visitor, what would have happened is that they would have gone down to the center part of town, to the central square of town, and they would have waited for someone to offer them their, a room in their home to feed them, provide a means for them to bathe, to wash their feet, and to sleep for the night. And the word here, seek to show hospitality, it has the force of earnestly pursue hospitality. And the force for Paul in his day is go down to the central, the court in town, and pick up the stranger. Genuine love, caring for the needs of the saints. Genuine love, caring for those outside of the church the stranger in your town. This is a bridge for us. And it reveals that we are to live the same way of life, marked by a genuine love in action to those inside and outside of the church. There's not two separate ways of life. One that we like to do here with ourselves, you know, chummy, and then we're just something different outside of our gathering. No, Paul is calling us and he's showing us that the way of life of the kingdom is the same in here and out there. The same lived and genuine love toward you as it is to my neighbors who do not know God. And then finally in verse 18, so that's genuine love. Paul describes genuine love for those outside of the church when he writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that really stands as kind of an anchor in verses 14 through 21. And indeed, those verses, everything that surrounds verse 18 there, uh, Paul provides essential and practical instruction on how to live peaceably with all, whether inside or outside the church. And it's so clear, I don't need to explain it. It really is. What we need to do is ask God to give us the power to obey it and live it out. But I'm going to rehearse it. Verse 14, "Bless bless and do not curse those who mistreat you. That's clear. Sometimes I think we want it to be unclear, so there's a back door out. Maybe not in this situation, right, God? No, no, no. Bless those who curse you. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is, where, this is what you need to start to show your neighbors. Worm yourself into their lives. You gotta, if you live in a neighborhood, worm yourself into your neighbor's lives. In the best possible way, with the best possible intentions, to express to them genuine love and to live peaceably with them so that you can celebrate with them when they're celebrating and you can mourn with them when they're weeping. Being present to them and being an ambassador of Jesus. 
Verse 16, live in harmony with others. The key here is humility. Yet again, just like verse 3, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Verse 17, never repay evil with evil, but rather live honorably even when treated without honor. Don't repay evil for evil. Verse 19, do not seek to get even with one who has wronged you. Instead, trust God as the just judge. Or maybe better, entrust yourself and your life in that situation to God who says, I will repay. That's my role. Don't take it upon yourself. Leave room, Paul says, for the wrath of God. Verse 20, instead of taking it out, seeking vengeance, rather do good to those who have wronged you. Perhaps your good deeds will lead, to, lead them to repentance. And this is indeed what Paul means by heaping burning coals on their head. Maybe they'll be ashamed of the way they treated you when you respond with good deeds, out of love. And my, that might, by God's grace, lead them to repentance. Lead them to God. Isn't that not God's mode of operation with us? His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Finally, verse 21, in Christ we are more than conquerors, and the way we conquer is through genuine love embodied in good deeds in the world. We've already heard we're more than conquerors. Here Paul tells us to conquer evil with good. All of this emerges in our lives when in response to the mercies of God, as he tells us in verse 1, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. As a church built up through the spirit-filled, God-gifted community who refuses to conform to the world, to this present age of rebellion, choosing rather to renew our minds in accord with the will of God. And when we do so, the new resurrection life of God, of Christ, of his kingdom, his coming kingdom, will burst out of our lives into this world in ways that might be small and insignificant at first, but to give forgiveness it undoes it undoes so much darkness to break the cycle of vengeance and getting even it bursts life into our world God's kingdom clawing its way greater expansion into our world, awaiting the day when Christ returns. So allow his kingdom to burst out of your life within and without the church. And such a culture of genuine love and peace will stand out as a witness of light and life amid the surrounding culture of self-absorption that is designed to maximize individual accomplishment, whether in career or in self-creation. And the problem with our surrounding culture is that its way of life has left many, more than half of us clinically, lonely, anxious, depressed, and uncertain of how to live in relationship to others. What an opportunity. There's a real opportunity for us today as the church to lead others to know Jesus. To lead them to experience the mercies of God by embodying the culture of God's kingdom, a culture of worship that produces acts of genuine love 
and peace to all. Ask God to show you where you can live into that vision of his kingdom more this week and next week. And ask God to use your life in your neighborhood and in your workplace to draw others to know Jesus Christ today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.